Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising happy, healthy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information tools and strategies. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Tom McSheehy. Tom is a licensed social worker and licensed teacher in Colorado and Illinois. He's also the founder of the Teaching Heart Institute, an organization that's dedicated to connecting the world of education and mental health and supporting teachers and parents in developing children's and teenagers' social emotional intelligence. Further, he is author of the book, In Focus, Improving Social and Emotional Intelligence, One Day at a Time. This is a brain-based manual that guides teachers in doing quick daily lessons that develop the social emotional intelligence of their students. Tom is one of the presenters at our upcoming Stress and Anxiety Conference that's taking place on May 1st and 2nd. Um, and we hope that you can join us. To get registered, just go to www.penbb.org. We also wanna take a minute to thank our sponsors, Premier Members Credit Union, Centennial Peaks Hospital, and Sandstone Care Addiction Treatment Center. Thank you so much for your gener generous support. So thanks for being here with us today, Tom. Thanks, Shelley. It's, uh, I'm just glad to talk to you about this important topic and spend time on it especially at this yes. time in our, in our world and in our country. Yeah, absolutely. So we are here today to talk in depth about social emotional learning, which sometimes I say uh, social emotional intelligence, I kind of, you know, the terms are interchangeable. So throughout the podcast, if, if our listeners hear those two terms, they can assume they're basically the same thing. Um, and I know that you've had a big career in this. So can you just start from the beginning and share with our listeners, what does social emotional intelligence, social emotional learning mean? Maybe I'll just share a little bit quickly. So uh, sort of what I've done in terms of, I started in 1985, got into education. And from early on, I sensed as a teacher that the social emotional development of my students was really important to me personally because of what happened to me as a kid. But I also knew that unless they were able to feel safe and connected to me and each other, they're not gonna learn well. So in 85, there wasn't much, the, the term emotional intelligence wasn't being used. There's probably many teachers who taught it in their own way. So from 85 to 95, I was sort of teaching it my own way. And then I decided to get my master's in social work and um, had this idea for Teaching Heart Institute, but I decided to go back to teaching for one reason, because I loved the classroom. Second reason, it was scary to leave it and venture off and let go of security. For 21 years, I taught and combined my master's in social work with teaching. And eventually I went off and started teaching hard. During the time I was teaching, I was doing presentations in Illinois for teachers and parents and trainings for teachers. But it wasn't until uh, I left teaching that I really jumped into teaching hard and promoting SEL. That's really been what feels like my life calling is trying to get SEL into schools and homes. So that's a little bit about my background. But in terms of the question of what SEL is, I'm going to break it down into just a subset of skills and, and talk briefly about it. So first of all, it's the ability to manage emotions. And that's the ability to feel them, which isn't always easy, to build up a sense of tolerance for them, 
but to also embrace the wisdom of them. Emotions, there are no positive and negative emotions. They're only emotions. And they're there to inform your decisions and guide you and to connect us together. So there's great wisdom. And then of course, how do you express them and use them is a key skill. The second skill is the ability to control impulses or delay gratification. And those two are very big skills, obviously, if you think about it. And you think of any issue on the news tonight, whether it's violence or race or anything, it often boils down to these two skill sets. The third one is the ability to calm yourself, to notice your stress, to, to, to feel into what you're feeling, to identify it and manage through self-soothing. The fourth skill is the ability to persevere thing when things get tough. And it depends on those first three skills. Can you do the first three skills well? And if you can, you can tolerate discomfort and persevere through it. Another skill is the ability to communicate effectively, which companies want these days. Can you communicate what's going on inside you effectively and deal with other people in a meaningful way, communication-wise? The ability to express empathy. And you can only express empathy if you're able to feel deeply your own discomfort, and then you can stand in the shoes of another. Another important skill is can you work with others? Again, companies are wanting people that can work collaboratively with others, which is not easy. We're all different and we all bring something unique to the table. And finally, in this world, this one is very big, the ability to negotiate conflicts in a win-win manner. It's on the news constantly. And often the way we deal with things is not conscious and it often lacks a sense of what's good for you and me. So that makes up SEL. <laughs> That's a lot, right? When it's I hear you share that, it's important both for our kids as they grow into their adult lives and they take on jobs and they have meaningful relationships, but it's also something that's so present in our day-to-day -day lives. It's present in the home, present as our kids manage doing schooling at home, being around their siblings more often, having to negotiate how they spend time with their friends in this new pandemic online world and social media world. So when I hear you talk about that, it's critical that these kids learn how to do these things. I have a model of the brain, which is really important. Much of what everything I talked to you about today is going to be what they call neurobiology. What I teach teachers and parents is based on what the brain needs and what the nervous system needs to be regulated and really present with another human being and with ourselves. So it's less theory and more science that I'm gonna to share today, but brain-wise, a lot of what I talk about today is gonna to be about the brain and how it functions best. So we're all wired to be emotional, regardless of culture or race. We all look the same on the inside. And how that functions, the brain is critical to how we relate to people and everything, even the violence on the news, or whatever, it all comes down to how we deal with our brain. So why is it so important and why skills? Because schools are not teaching these skills. Part of what parents are gonna have to hopefully get out of this is things they can do at home and things that can get in the way of doing this at home, but things that are getting in the way of teaching at school, even though schools say they're doing this. So number one, two thirds of the skills that companies want right now are in SEL, two thirds. They're wanting employees that have these skills because it helps the business be more productive, bottom line. Number two, Google did a study about four years ago to find out what are the most successful characteristics of their employees. The ones who are most successful, what characteristics do they display? They came up with eight characteristics. The top seven are social emotional learning. Number eight 
is STEM, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Doesn't mean those subjects aren't important. They're critical. It tells you how important SEL is or social emotional learning is in combination with academics. And Google was shocked by this. They pride themselves on technology that only techies know how to run a business and make it successful. And they were shocked that it's actually SEL that makes them most successful. And our kids and adolescents need to hear this and parents and teachers. Number three sort of highlight I'll do research-wise is Terry Moffat did a study from Duke and she tracked a thousand children for 30 years to find out what's, what kids are most successful related to wealth, health, and public safety. So if you think about whatever you could teach your children or any parent could teach your child, what are the two most important things when you think of mathematics and reading and survival? And it came down to two basic skills. The ability, what they call in research sort of lingo, modulate emotional expression, which means the ability to feel and manage and express your emotions constructively. Makes sense. Number two, the ability to delay gratification, which means to wait, to set goals and persevere through discomfort to get to those goals. Those two are going to help people succeed in life, whether it's relationships or jobs or avoiding addictions or dealing with anxiety, you name it, it's at the core. And I wanna highlight the violence in the United States right now that I know we all are not only feeling helpless and asking the question, what can we do? And there's a lot we can do. And I know it's touched Boulder where you're at and where I used to live um, and it's touched other places. Number one, the way we raise young boys and young girls not unconsciously and consciously based on very old mental health stigmas. They, the way they cope with emotions is not healthy. Boys, we teach them not to show sadness, that it's weak to show sadness or hurt or fear. And anger is much more allowed. So all the other emotions are hurt and pain and sadness and fear gets channeled into anger. With girls, they're not taught to show healthy aggression or their power and use anger in a healthy way, especially around boys. So they turn a lot of this stuff inward through cutting and eating disorders. Most of the violence in the United States is committed by boys. Most of the police abuse is created by men. You look across our culture, and that's not a coincidence. And that doesn't have to do with gender and testosterone, little parts of it. Majority of it is how we socialize young boys. And what I want to say briefly about that is SEL. When you get SEL in classrooms and homes, so let's start with classrooms, it creates this safe container where kids can show up and start talking about how, not only how they feel and how to manage it, but they learn how to connect with others. Most of the kids who commit these crimes, young boys and young men, have characteristics. They've dealt with trauma. They've dealt with bullying. So they're usually outsiders who have something that's different about them and they feel different and they're teased by it in class and there's nothing done about it and they don't connect and belong and they build up and build up and they often have trauma at home and deprivation. And eventually, if you know about the brain, it's, they just, they lose it. So I want to highlight that SEL will address violence. And so the more we work on in classrooms and schools, bingo. And the last two things I'll say is people look at what can we do when we look at the nightly news or our national budget and everything. We waste so much money putting band-aids on issues related to Chicago here where I'm at has wasted so much money on violence and doesn't get to the core issues. And most of our society is like that. And when you address the SEL, the return on that investment for every dollar invested in SEL, you get an $11 to $37 return on that investment. 
and it helps with things like anxiety and depression, prevents, you know, more probability kids won't commit suicide, you know, more productive at work. And it builds connection and belonging, which I think is a critical issue I'd love to get across today. But in, in a nutshell, I mean, that's a long, but I want this to be said. This is probably an important part. So I want schools and administrators and parents out there to know that this should be forefront in every classroom, 20 minutes to a half hour every day. You have time. You don't have time not to do this based on the brain. If you just want to know, you want to get good grades in the school and your child to get good grades, do SEL. It's going to help them calm themselves, focus, and really live up to the potential. I know that's yeah. a lot, but it's important to say all that because it's critical. Sure. That's a great explanation as to why it's important. And I sit on a couple of coalitions where we talk about how to get SEL in the schools. And I empathize some with teachers and with parents who, who don't have access to training and tools and strategies at their fingertips uh, because it can feel overwhelming. Like, I already have this to do. And now I have this to add to it. And one of the conversations we've had a lot is that SEL is not something to add to your plate. It is the plate, which gets to the core of what you're saying, that if you have this foundation of teaching and just being, not even teaching specific things, but being with children and being with your students in a certain way, then they're more able to pay attention in school, learn and get along with each other. As you said, connectedness and problem solving and communicating and managing their emotions. These are all things parents watch their children deal with and learn how to do. So how do you think it's different today in today's world than it has been in previous generations? You know, the skills are no different of what's important. Those were needed a hundred years ago. What's different right now, I think is the speed of life and technology, that things have gotten too fast. The things that are really critical for kids and adults are our nervous systems. We either speed up or slow down and find some balance. And when we're too extreme and speeding up, we're going to be overwhelmed or if we're too slow, we're going to be underwhelmed. But our nervous system is critical in our brain. And I feel like the speed of life these days is almost too much for us to take the time to connect. And in some ways, the dicey part of technology is it's really important and it's a tool. And unfortunately it is a profit making business and they do want you to use more of it. So inherently tech companies are implementing more about neuroscience in the brain than schools and parents are. And what tech companies know that there's a bit of an addictive quality to cell phones and to um, video games that they give us a hit of dopamine. It might be a good time just to point out from the brain. So there's really three critical areas related to SEL. This is the brainstem, which is all about your survival on a physical sense. Will I survive or will I die? And it also taps into your vagus nerve or calming your nervous system. This produces dopamine, which then goes up to the limbic system, which is our emotional center. Anything to do with emotions or motivation, pain and pleasure, sexuality, connection. All of these are in the limbic system. These two really drive everything in our life. That sort of concerns us on the news has to do with these two areas and the inability to manage these areas. And the area that we're working on with kids in schools and at homes is the frontal cortex behind your eyes. And this is where we manage these two areas. But with video games, dopamine and the, ple the pleasure center, and this partly is because I think we don't teach kids how to cope. The tough part is parents are doing on-the-job training right now with SEL. They weren't raised in homes or schools where this was taught. 
and they were taught not to feel. And now they're being told through brain science and what we're learning in SEL, it's good to feel, it's good to talk. And parents are like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. And so cell phones have sort of replaced the connection between parents and teachers and important people. And our brains and nervous systems are regulated and crave connection. But if we don't know how to connect, we turn to our cell phone and more and more kids are turning to the cell phone for connection and to avoid feeling. It, it has concerns. I mean, I'm really, I don't think in some ways the cell phone and communicating through, um, through text messages and things has no nonverbal cues. We can't read facial expressions, tone of voice, body language, which our right brain, right hemisphere, our brain loves. It creates safety. And so we're creating a generation that doesn't know how to feel and is afraid of discomfort and relates to text messages and you know breaks up relationships through text messages. And it's an easy out. And so I'm worried, is technology important? Of course. But I think what concerns me more is it's sort of like the cupcake apple comparison. Cupcakes are very tasty. They're a bit addictive for someone like me. I love sugar or did as a kid. And yet an apple is much more nutritious. Kids are tending to get a, a lot of cupcakes, which is, you could say, some form of nourishment. But the quality of the nourishment that you get from a cell phone or a video game is far less than you get through a relationship or real life experience. And that's my greatest concern with technology. And technology is not all, you know, much of it is just driven by selling more, not so much as what's good for kids and teenagers. So you have to be a good consumer. And I feel like parents these days are so stressed, they can't manage the phone and they can't manage the video games. Yeah, that's a really good point. We've talked about video games and cell phones. And a lot of what kids are using their cell phone for right now is to connect with their friends via things like Instagram, where they're getting that same dopamine hit. So it's a really critical conversation, right, for parents to have with their children around what are the limits and technology isn't going to go away. So how do you use it in an appropriate way and supplement <laughs> those apples for some of the cupcakes? I love that analogy. Very, very good. We've talked about how SEL involves self-awareness and self-management, social awareness, relationship management. But this looks really different according to age. Being a developmentalist, I always think about what does that look like for a kid that's like in elementary school versus middle school, high school, and a young adult? Like, how do we look at SEL differently by age? Yeah, well, first I want to know and especially speak to those young parents or grandparents. The most important age for the development of SEL is the first year and a half of life. From the moment of conception to a year and a half is the prime time for SEL. And I, I have to speak to, to the, the beliefs out there. We, we have gotten away from what's good for babies. And I understand some of that is convenient, but we don't birth and care for babies in their early years as well as we could. And, and that's not because parents don't love the babies that they do. I, I just wanted to let parents know that that time is so important. And Alan Shore, who comes to Boulder frequently, who I studied with and is one of the experts from UCLA and the early years just speaks so beautifully about what happens to the brain through good attachment and connection. And, and SEL is at the forefront. But really, each age, I mean, with young kids, obviously, you're just teaching. It's happening from birth to three or four through feeling and through parents modeling what they feel and sense and labeling those emotions. I mean, the basic things of learning to label emotions and even waiting, you know, when you give your child a two-year-old something and they say, I want this now, this apple, even going away and taking 
30 extra seconds each time and then come back and say, thank you for waiting. That, that the ability to wait and applaud them for waiting, little kids. But then from there on, I mean, when you have a curriculum in schools, a simple curriculum, and then it's the same thing parents are using at home, that helps give a guideline for parents and the skills to work on at home and what they can do. So much of it is on being real and authentic about their own experiences and reflecting those out loud. And I'll talk in a few minutes about how that looks, but the skills really are very much the same. It's just with younger kids, you're not gonna be so explicit about working on them with a birth to four-year-old. It's more about being in relationship and teaching it through play. And then when you get into school, you can teach them as skills that can be done at home or in, um, wherever, really. You know, as we talk about this, how can a parent tell if a child needs some SEL support? Um, and one thing I'll just say about the babies, it's all about connection, really. It's about how attuned. The same thing, it, it's not much different what we do for a, a baby that we do for a teenager. It's can you attune to them? Attune meaning notice what they're feeling or body language and be with yourself and feel what you're feeling and try to connect with where they're at emotionally and drop into that space and self-regulate as you're going to breathe as I'm sitting here with you and I notice your face and maybe how you're feeling. That's what you do with a baby to self-regulate. That's what you do with a teenager. But in terms of, I mean, it's, I think the most important times to teach SEL is under stress. One thing that we know from a brain point of view is when a teenager or a kid is under stress, they drop down to the lower parts, the more what we call primitive parts of the brain, the reptilian brain, what reptiles, survival, the mammalian brain, mammals, which has emotions and feeling. And we're down here. Can someone still exist? Yeah, I spent my whole childhood down in these two areas and still I played sports and learned. I just learned slower and I wasted time because I was so preoccupied and anxious. So the game is obviously with any child is what's going on with the behavior. And if you have an anxious child or a child who's having trouble focusing or things like that, of course, that's a time to get support. But Kids are good at faking it. Kids are good. We all want to look good. And I think most of society wants to look good. And more and more, we're learning to be authentic and real is what's not only healthy for us, but good for business. So, you know, showing up and being whatever it is. But I think for parents, I would look for the challenging time and be curious, always curious about what are you modeling for your child? And I don't mean modeling perfection. It's not being conscious out loud and saying, wow, when I'm stressed, what do I do? And if you make mistakes to say, wow, you know, when uh, I just got that phone call, I just lost it. You know, I just started screaming. And now I just want to apologize. That wasn't, wasn't a good response to stress. And I, I think next time I just got to take some deep breaths and take a walk around the block. But to be consciously watching what you do and, and if there's repairs to be made to do it. But what you are modeling authentically, not perfectly, is the game and to be curious and want to grow as a parent. You know, in terms of a child, it's pretty obvious when they isolate, when they speed up, when they're doing something that's out of character, to be curious and want to tell them you're available. That's mostly what you can do instead of, you know, and obviously getting support, but the game is to really say, hey, I'm here to talk if ever you need me, you know, and really be sincere. And when you do get a chance to talk, don't have an agenda to fix or change them, but to have an agenda to listen to understand, to really feel what they're feeling. Because when you do that, that's when you create trust with the child, that it's not all about my parent trying to get me away from what I'm feeling and to tell me what to do, but they want to understand me on some level. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I love what you're talking about because it gets back to that whole, it is the plate. It's not something on the plate. It's how we show up with our kids. Can I say something about the plate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, for teachers, it's a big deal that don't add one more thing to my plate, but I think for parents, and I think the more they see that doing these skills in their life is not so much a thing to do, but it's about developing a deeper connection with themselves, which is going to be nourishing for parents and teachers, but with their children, our students. And what comes of that, so when you connect and work with kids on a deeper level, you get, they're going to learn how to manage their emotions. They're going to learn how to focus better, sit still and calm themselves. It'll, they'll have less of things that parents deal with, which is like drinking and cutting and drugs and acting out or acting in, are all response to stress and emotions. And the more kids can learn healthy ways to deal with that, it's going to make parents' life easier and teachers' life. And, you know, parents get out or teachers get out of teaching because of the discipline and the lack of focus and disruption. And this is working on it. So it's actually making their life easier and not one more thing on their plate. It's removing mm. their plates. You know, the other thing that comes to my mind is just how critical it is for parents to be self-aware and managing their own lives and their own happiness and their own stress. And so, you know, really putting those techniques in place, like you said, going for a walk, taking deep breaths, even saying to your child, you know what, right now I'm kind of activated, but I want to talk to you when I'm more calmed down. And that way the child sees that modeling that you're talking about. So it's just really showing up for me that it's important for that self-care piece is very important. You know what the tough part for parents, and it might be a good time to interject this, is so we have a couple things that are getting in the way of teachers and parents doing SEL. And it can easily, for schools, SEL can easily fail or plateau, easily. In homes, not so much because I think the mental health part's going to push parents to do something. But there's two things happening in our world that makes it hard for teachers and parents. Number one, for much of our time on this planet, it, we've been a left-centric world, very much oriented towards the left, anal analytical thinking, analyzing. The right brain for a long time has seen feeling, experience, and intuition, connection was seen as a weakness. Mental health stigmas fight against being a right brain experience. And so I do want to tell you one thing that's fascinating about the sides of the brain. This side has no connections to the body, the left brain, it's, and, which is great. It's all about analyzing, be very unfeeling, thinking. This is all about feeling. And this side of the brain has all the connections to the body. So to deal with trauma, you've got to go into the feeling side of the brain. The tough part is it's going to bring up all those old emotions. If you had, there is nobody who doesn't have trauma. Every culture came to the United States out of trauma. And African-Americans came here, they were brought here, but then they've had 100 years of trauma. Many experts say that we, sh we shouldn't even talk about race until we talk about trauma and deal with our own traumas. So, you know, it's so important to know as a parent that to do this work, parents were taught to be in a left brain and many of the behaviors of their own parents were left brain. A relational feeling side, parents are scared to feel. And if you've been through trauma, to go in the right side and feel could feel very uncomfortable. And so they avoid, and we all have our avoidant techniques of how we coped as little kids and they're brilliant. They're just not brilliant as adults, whether it's speeding up or shopping or eating or whatever way you do it. I think I want to tell parents that this paradigm shift that's saying it's great, social emotional intelligence, great, mental health is great, and feeling is great. 
is going to be tough. And you have to be gentle and compassionate because you're trying to learn how to feel as an adult. And you weren't taught as a child. And you have all these beliefs and all this in wiring that's very unconscious, visceral, that makes it hard to be fully present. And then you beat yourself up for not being fully present. And the more you can just find that authentic voice is like, wow, I just spaced out when you were talking, dear. Or I'm, you know, I want to so be with your sadness and I'm gonna, but I'm scared because I don't feel very good. I don't do sadness well, but I'm going to stay with you and try. That's better than making eye contact and nodding. So I think for parents to be self-aware with compassion, to know that they're going to be spacey and they're going to avoid, they're going to have all these behaviors, but be curious, 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 and keep reflecting when they're triggered and try to catch themselves and just voice that out loud to their partners, to the kids and tell them I'm working on this. So um, hopefully, I know I shared a lot there, but hopefully that made sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. makes total sense. I think that that's really important to mention, the compassion piece. Now, you wrote a book for teachers to help them do this, to do what we're talking about, implement some simple strategies in the classroom. Can you share a little bit about your book and, and what those strategies look like? Yeah, and one thing I just wanted to share is why, because I, 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 wouldn't, I struggle with writing. It's kind of my learning disability. And so for years and years, I promoted SEL and promoted other people's curriculum. And they're good curriculums. There's many great curriculums out there. But my experience both in the classroom, 20 years ago, we got the best curriculum. And it's still number one curriculum, but it had so many bells and whistles, videos and binders and things that it sat on the shelves of my colleagues in my room often. And then I watched for another 10 years, teachers not do SEL and asked them why and was curious. And so finally in 2010, I decided I, had, I was gonna write something that teachers would use because there's two big things keeping, keeping teachers from doing SEL. One is a scary topic. It's very vulnerable. It's not like reading, writing, or math where it can be left-brained. This is a right-brained experience and it's uncomfortable. Can you teach it for a few years just following a script? Yeah, but after three years, you're going to plateau and put it on the back shelf and they're going to say SEL doesn't work or we need a new curriculum. So I decided in 2010, I wanted to write something that was teacher-friendly. Most of the curriculum is written you know, by publishing houses and professors. And there's nothing that speaks to teachers. So I know teachers have 10 or 15 minutes. And so in focus, it's 10 or 15 minutes is like you introduce. And then I teach them how to integrate it into reading and writing and math throughout the day. So you're like getting mental health training all day long in the flow of the day. And teachers love the simplicity. So I wrote something that's one page. It's simple. It's beautiful. It's friendly. And when they see it, they say, I can do it and I'll try it because just trying it is a big deal because now they're going to be invited into their own social emotional world, which is very scary for most of us, including teachers who many of have been through trauma. Yeah, that's the main part of it. And where it's gone, there's a kindergarten, a second grade edition, a third to five and a six to eight. And my strength is my weakness is what makes me very strong in this area is I spent so many years in the classroom and in, in therapy rooms. And I think and feel like a teacher and I know the world of parents. And that makes me also weak because it's a grassroots campaign. It's not coming from a major corporation down. Although a great gift came into my world through Colorado and through Littleton, which was featured, a school that's using a focus who featured on a Today Show a year ago which connected me to the Hayden Hurst Foundation. 
Hayden plays for the Atlanta Falcons. He's a starting tight end, a first-round draft choice, and seven years ago tried to take his life in college. Grapples with depression and anxiety and decided he, he survived by the help of medical staff, and he determined he was going to start this foundation to work with kids and adolescents. And he, they happened upon my curriculum, and they started seeing here in my message, which is a classroom. Parents are the most important people related to getting SEL started, but if you wanted to change mental health in our country the fastest, in the most economical way, in the most powerful way, you'd start in classrooms because kids are there for six hours with the same teacher from kindergarten to fifth grade, and then they're in classrooms all day long. And you can change mental health in a series of years. And so for me, the Hayden Hurst Foundation has been a blessing because he's given me a platform to connect. That's powerful. But so, yeah, in focus and my work is just, I want teachers and parents knowing how to teach this in simple, easy ways. It doesn't have to be complicated. We're already complicated and overwhelmed. And being 63 years old, I'm more, you know, rushing to get what's inside me out. And I'll tell you this, what, what I worry about SEL, Shelly, and this is, uh, and I'll say, because I've learned certain things that aren't being talked about, and I've learned them the hard way, is one thing is, as I've said, that SEL could fail. And here's why. Because there's a paradigm that first of all believes that teachers teach academics and school counselors deal with mental health. And that paradigm is hardwired into people's brain. I have to work really hard. Teachers are very protective and defensive and rightly so. Everyone's telling them how to do their job. And when you say, guess what? You're going to do SEL. The first reaction is don't give me one more thing and don't make me be a touchy-feely teacher. And so we got to embrace that first of all, school counselors are really important in dealing with really intense trauma. We need to free them up to work with kids who have intense issues like trauma. But a classroom teacher can deliver SEL and mental health very quickly and effectively by being themselves. And I'll give you an example is when I went to Colorado, there was a teacher. I told him, all you need to be this year is authentic. If you don't want to do in focus, tell your students that and why. If you come to a lesson on sadness, say, I don't want to do this lesson. It scares me. I'm not comfortable. I'm going to do it. That's an amazing SEL lesson. It's not sitting like some person who has it all together. Well, a teacher in the back of the room named Gene said, hey, Tom, there's no crying in my fourth grade classroom. And the whole room lit up with a sense of aliveness because she was being real and authentic. And I went over and gave her a high five and said, Gene, don't change who you are. Show up and be who you are, but tell the kids why. So she came up afterwards and said she came from a military home. And for her, there was no crying. And I said, Gene, tell your students that. So she tried and focused. She just was authentic, she's, you know, and real and said, you know, I, I don't like crying because my parents screamed at me all the time for crying. And so if we can teach teachers how to be authentic and real, and I, I love working with resistant teachers and tell them, be resistant, be openly resistant, because you have 25 kids who live in a society where there's resistance and there's beliefs out there that you shouldn't feel. And when you show up in a reel, you can do it. So the moral of the story is what I'm sharing is I don't think we talk enough about how tough the subject this is to teach. And we just think you give them a manual and you do two days of training and off you go. This is, this is like going in the world of therapy and, and really exploring yourself and learning how to find your voice. Hopefully that made sense, but I'm worried about education. I hear a bandwagon happening with SEL and everybody's getting on it, but it's unless there's substance that we need to support teachers in growing year after year in their own growth, 
it's gonna plateau or fail. Yeah, so what we're talking about today is really important so that people can start to understand what the foundation of SEL is and how there are some simple ways that it can be implemented. Speaking of which, um, I'd love it if you shared three, four, five simple ways that parents can implement SEL in their home. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna use, talk about the brain again. And I really, there's three languages in the brain and this is gonna, we're gonna use this, I'm gonna teach a skill. So number one, the brainstem talks to you through physical sensations. So often for me, my stomach gets tight when I'm scared. Other people have tightness on their chest or a racing heart. That's the brainstem talking to you and you need to honor that. That's the visceral unconscious language of the body. The limbic system talks to you through emotions and memories. The frontal cortex through words and images. And so one of the most important steps that parents could do is for the next, and to do baby steps. I'm not, I get overwhelmed very easily and I like things very simple. So for parents, one step they can do to work on for a while is just identify their sensations during the day. Whenever they look at the clock, to see if they can re-inhabit their bodies. We often have a very weird relationship with our bodies. If we've been through trauma or we taught not to feel, to just be curious throughout the day of where they feel tightness, what's going on. And then if you wanted to add step two to that, so we're just playing around in the brainstem and the body and sensations, then to move up to the limbic system and to be curious throughout the day when you look at the clock of, of the six, and I teach six primary emotions only because that's what I learned and they're simple. And they're paired together. They're easy to learn. Happiness and sadness go hand in hand. You can't know one without the other. Anger and hurt go hand in hand. You know, if you see a hurt child, he or she is angry underneath it. If you see an angry child, he or she is hurt underneath it. Those go hand in hand. And the other ones is love and fear which is they go hand in hand. They truly love someone is a scary event because you're gonna say goodbye to them someday. Those are the six primary emotions. And the more that people can be curious, most of us don't know. I know when I got into therapy at 32, I didn't even know what I was feeling. And it took a lot of practice to be aware, to learn, to relearn, to unlearn what I was taught. And so first to just identify sensations for a few weeks and hang out in the brainstem, then to hang out in the limbic system and notice emotions when you look at the clock all day and just start getting curious and guessing if you don't know because the limbic system wants to connect with you it's not it hasn't gone away and then finally to put it all together and one of the things that i love to do and this is i'm looking down at my list so my favorite activity is called integrating the brain is is pulling the brainstem, the limbic system and frontal cortex together. And so an example of this is you're driving your child to, to school and you look at the clock and you're in the car and you say, oh my God, we're 10 minutes late. Whoosh, and just pause. A lot of life is about pausing and self-reflecting. Pause and self-reflect and slow down. And then notice what, what's your body saying? Whoa, I just I noticed I froze as I was driving, when I saw it, looked at my watch, my body's just all tight. That's the brainstem. And then also I'm feeling a little scared and I'm just gonna take some deep breaths. And to do that out loud, because when we reflect out loud, the people around us, the brain of other people naturally compare themselves to ours. So if I reflect out loud right now and say my stomach's tight, your brain's gonna compare and, and just notice your body for a second. And then notice if I say I'm feeling scared, you'll think about your emotions. And if I do a modeling of self-care, whether it's shaking my hands or rubbing or breathing or whatever, if I just take a deep breath, like right now, 
it helps you slow down because we, we help each other's co-regulate. So that simple mindful reflection out loud of the three languages of the brain, and it's so visceral, the things that come out of us, that anyone who thinks that we aren't wired, the things that are, we learn from a young age in all areas, but social, emotionally. And, but anyways, this sense of reflecting out loud, and if your teenagers ask your kids, just say, hey, I'm trying to get more in touch with how I'm feeling. I'm trying to work on myself. I'm trying to learn how to be in the moment. And this is a practice. Just say, hey, you know, often if you have kids, you know, maybe third grade and up, I would tell them why we're working on trying to avoid technology or setting limits on it. Why I'm doing this practice. Just show them a brain and just say, hey, I'm trying to get more in touch with my body, feeling, because I wasn't. And it's going to help us in our life. When I taught my students why they were learning something, they got into it and they understood it. Instead of just saying, just breathe. No, show them what the vagus nerve is below the lungs and how, you know, I showed them. And so that's one technique. It's my favorite technique. And then another one is just take moments to listen to your child with no agenda. When you listen to someone who's feeling deeply, we as human beings feel like we have to do something. And as adults with children, to fix their emotions. I mean, we feel that way partly because we're uncomfortable and we don't know what to do. And we think to be useful, we got to take away their problems or we got to take away what they're feeling. But children and adolescents learn how to feel and calm themselves in relationship by practicing. And when we have adults who are willing to sit with us in our sadness and be with it without trying to make it go away, and then eventually to help self-soothe, and then we'll feel like we cycle through the sadness and we self-soothe. Then we maybe will problem solve. Maybe there's problem solve. But I find my most touching moments when I think about my life are not what I accomplished. They're done. It's the times that people took time to be kind to me and to listen to, with no agenda to fix me or to change me, but to really try to understand my world and to feel it into it and to try to just be with that world. To me, those are my most precious moments as ever, you know, being in my 60s in my life. It's not what I accomplished or things I've done, but the way that people touched me or maybe that I touched somebody else in, in a way where, like in this moment, I'm feeling tears well up. That's because it was so important what people did to, to just be with me. And it still goes on. You know, my family's still trying to take away my emotions. They mean well, and all I need them to do is be there for me. You know, and it's the hardest lesson for a parent or a sibling to learn. I think the tail, the jump on, I want to share one more thing right after that. Um, by the way, I have a little thing that, I, if, you know, whatever letters, but to remember the words feel, comfort, do, you know, and you can make up a fat cat, dog or whatever, but to feel with a child and then to try to comfort. And that can just be breathing. That can also just being with them. I'm mostly comforted when people are present with me to be truthful. It's not about doing. And then finally, if there's a to-do, then to think about the to-do. You know, if a kid's being bullying or bullied or whatever. But I want to jump into this idea that if you can do this. So my dad died when I was 13. Um, profound event rather suddenly. And he was sort of my protector and yet a guy I was scared of because of the pressure he put on me. And if there's one, and there's one gift that came out of that for me, and it's the ability to say goodbye to people. You know, I'm still very scared to lose people. It's one of my more vulnerable things that people go away for no reason. And I, I would encourage parents to, to get a cheap journal or notebook. And each day or days that they 
notice something, to write down something socially and emotionally about their child, meaning a time they faced a fear, a time they were kind to another child, a time that they felt intense anger but chose to do something to calm themselves and then try to deal with the conflict, a time they came to their parents and shared a vulnerable feeling with them, a time they um, did an act of kindness for someone, you know, anything to do related to how they treat themselves or other people and showing up in this world when it's scary and to make notes of that, not in with just to factually write it down. I loved how you went to school today and you were scared, but you faced your fear and dealt with it. I loved how you helped that child who was being bullied at school. I wouldn't even say I loved, you helped, I would just write it factually because without your critiquing, you helped that child. And then on their birthday, give that notebook to them because they have then a year of entries of what you saw, their internal strength and their internal goodness in some way, but the way they showed up or the way they didn't and they tried to repair it. And like, they could even that you got in an argument with your brother and sister and yelled on screen, but you went back and talked to them and just write that down because now they have a year of seeing their strength. And if you really wanted to make it special to narrate it and give it to them. So they have a lifetime of, of hearing your voice and you seeing, you know, sort of their goodness and all their internal emotional and social intelligence or how they tried to repair it. To me, if I had, I'd give a lot of money to have my dad's eyes and what he saw and felt about me. And for any child, that's probably the, one of the most powerful things you could do to build mental health and social emotional learning in a year's time, you know, so. Um, mm, that's beautiful. One of the most important things, right, as a child is to know that you please your parent, when, especially when you're young, and to hear your parent reflect that back to you is beautiful. Yeah. Um, what you just shared, you've already answered a little bit of my next question, but I like to ask every one of my guests this question because I think it's so critical. As parents and professionals and people who interact with children on a regular basis, how can we best show up for them? Yeah, it's really, this is an important question to me. You know, part of my craving in life is to show up and just be Tom McSheehy. It'll take a lifetime to really be Tom McSheehy. Um, and just to come into a room and, you know, to be appreciated for who I have people see me, to value my gifts, to feel like I matter and that I'm wanted in that room and I belong. I mean, that's my yearning on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's most people's. And I think for parents and teachers, and in all society, we live in a society that's hard to be ourselves. And we set ourselves up to almost feel inadequate. This sense of perfection, you know, I love my greatest moment sometimes of interacting with people is when they're just themselves and they're being real with me. And it's sometimes showing their inadequate sides because it gives me permission just to be myself in that moment. And it's just, I take a deep breath when I, somebody shows up and is vulnerable. And and the one thing I learned in therapy starting in 92 is how to show up and be vulnerable in life. Um, and the power of that, you know, the power of just uh, being vulnerable. I think it's the ultimate thing for mental health is just to be real and authentic and vulnerable. You know, many of the mental health disorders, what we call disorders would go away through, through that kind of mm -hmm. connection. Um, and um, I think for parents, just and care, and anyone you know being with kids is just to know they can be real and authentic and allow themselves to be that, even in their imperfection. You know that just being curious, like wow, I was just being with you, and I noticed I spaced out for the last ten minutes. Wow, I'm sorry, but I'm back here. 
you know, and, and to not have it all together because it gives kids and teenagers a chance to know it's okay just to be and, and to show up as is. And there's not something because when we're that way, I mean, things work in this world. Um, so that's my, I think, um, my, my one thing, you know, that I'd really encourage, you know, yeah. and if people need sort of scientific data, I mean, they can explore Brene Brown, you know, who makes it into a form of research. I mean, belonging and authenticity and realness, you, if you try it, you'll feel it, but she makes it real. If your left brain needs that data, it's out there that this is critical. Yeah. Yeah. The power of vulnerability, I think is one of the most downloaded YouTube videos out there mm-hmm. from Brene Brown. Thank you for sharing that. I think. Can I share one thing on that? Yeah. Hayden Hurst, um, you know, this past year, the Atlanta Falcons chose to honor her story. And um, they made a little 12 minute video about him. And in it, he, he started crying when he talked about his depression and anxiety and how alone he felt. Um, and here's a six foot six, 250 pound tight end. Right, going against all the images of what football players are supposed to be. And, uh, you know, he just started crying and saying his family loved him, but he felt so profoundly alone. And I know that having grappled with anxiety and depression, I know that feeling of um, aloneness and isolation, which a lot of our kids feel this day. That's what concerns me most in this day and age is we're more connected to technology, but we're more lonely and disconnected. And if anything, I hope people to connect more richly and and sort of Hayden, that video has been seen over 9 million times across the, the world, the United States. Um, and it just speaks to the power of hunger. And what warmed my heart after 35 years in mental health and not making a lot of progress, to be honest, Hayden this year got voted um, the Alan Page NFL Players, um, Players Association Award for his work around mental health in schools. And I, it speaks mm-hmm. more, what warms my heart is here's an athlete going, and there was five people, including Patrick Mahomes, the great quarterback, doing great things in this world. But his former, his athletes, his peers, voted him the award for him showing up and being vulnerable and going against what football players are taught. To me, that gives me hope about this world because, um, <laughs> You know, that people can show up that way and it so resonates with people. It just tells me how hungry people are out there in the world to connect. Um, And we need to find a way. Um, So, yeah. Mm, Yeah. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. And I know I'm touched and I think other people will be touched and inspired to think about how they can really show up and do the things that it takes to connect with their kids and and help their kids navigate this crazy world we're living in before we go is there anything else that you want to just leave our audience with a couple things to be curious about that that mean a lot um one is just highly sensitive kids being a highly sensitive Mm -hmm. man but growing up a highly sensitive young boy who played sports and coped but it's one of my gifts and in intelligence is my sensitivity. And, and as a young boy, I felt ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one out of five kids are highly sensitive. And they often feel a lot of shame. They often feel like something's wrong with them. And they're often more prone to suicide. Mm-hmm. And um, I would just encourage parents, you know, even if you don't have a highly sensitive child or you're not highly sensitive, to learn about highly sensitive kids because you'd be working with them. 
And there's nothing wrong, you know, they're like anybody, they have their unique gifts and they have their weaknesses. But I'd encourage parents because, not because they're any more special than any other kids, but their nervous systems and brains feel so deeply and sense so deeply that it makes the world a harder place than sort of kids who with regular nervous systems and brains. So they just need, they just need to know who they are, really what they need. Um, and know that that it's nothing wrong with them because they're so sensitive. That's one thing. And then I'd encourage parents to learn about trauma. Again, what I referenced earlier, I think we all have it. And it, mm -hmm. it needs to be gently explored. And um, and um, and finally, you know, I think my biggest yearning is um, that parents just take moments to connect with their children. You know, that in somehow, some way to slow their day down, not big things, but once a week to take half hour 10 minutes here 10 minutes there to really just listen and connect or do something where you feel connected or a child feels seen and heard you know um, that connection is priceless I mean it's just those moments so are what make this world a really meaningful place yeah mm, that's gold <laughs> share with people how they can get a hold of you if they yeah. want to reach out Sure. Um, the Teaching Heart Institute, which the word teaching is just T-E-A-C-H-I-N-G, heart, H-E-A-R-T, an institute. Um, that's my website. And right now, just to know that it's being, it's got stripped down to its bare bones because I'm building up a, a new one that's even more simple and beautiful and will allow me to have classes and short videos and things mm -hmm. that can support parents. And um, we all have this wisdom we gather over the years and I want to be sure it gets out there and, and can help people. So I want classes online that people can take. So, but if you go to teachingheartinstitute.com, just know it's, it's no pictures, no glamor, but you can sign up for my newsletter and the new website will be up and going in the near future. So thank so, you. And the, I guess the direct line to me is Tom at teachingheartinstitute.com. If wanted Tom at teaching. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thanks again for being here with us today. It's such an important conversation as we look at how we can support our young people in becoming healthy and happy adults, which is what, um, is what we're up to at Penn. And I think that the information and strategies you shared are going to give people some concrete ways that they can be in touch with themselves and uh, their children and build that relationship and compassion. So if you're interested in hearing more from Tom and our other presenters, please go to our website, which is www.penbv.org to sign up for our virtual stress and anxiety conference that's coming up on May 1st and 2nd. And we do want to give another shout out to our wonderful sponsors, Premier Members Credit Union, Centennial Peaks Hospital, and Sandstone Care Addiction Treatment Center for their generous sponsorship. If you're inspired, there's also an option on our website to make a donation or become a sponsor yourself. So feel free to do that. Um, every little bit helps in this world. We hope that today's conversation added to your parenting well, and that the information and insights that we shared here today will help you in raising healthy, happy kids. It's an honor to have you join us. And until next time, happy parenting. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you, Shelly. And thanks for all your work you do at Penn and trying to help parents. It's wonderful Thank work. you. Powerful work. Thank you. Take care.